Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So, Ms. Wolf, in reviewing your request for unemployment benefits, we were a little confused by what you wrote down under previous employment. American Idol contestant, yeah, I made it to the quarterfinals, and then it was me against Melinda Doolittle, and I was like, don't let the sun go down on me, yeah. Although I search myself, it's always someone else I see. Please sit down. I know that didn't sound really good, but I have terrible seasonal allergies. Western cedar, sycamore, maple, they hit me during the competition, just like they're hitting me now. Otherwise, it would have been me, not stupid Jordan Sparks. That's all very sad, but I'm not sure it makes you eligible for benefits under section... Please, just move some decimal points around. Save me just this once, and I will always love you. I'm going to have to ask you to stop that. Mr. whatever your name is, if I don't get these benefits, how am I going to keep going? You know, how am I going to pursue my dream? How can you say no to someone with so much promise? How can you mend a broken heart? How can a loser ever win? Ms. Wolf, please stop. Look, I hear a lot of sad stories here in this job from people just like you. And here's what I tell them. You got no money and yeah, you got no home. Spinning wheel, spinning all alone. Talking about your troubles and yeah, you never learn. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. You know, that sounds very familiar somehow. Anyway, today on the show, it's The Nose talking about the end of American Idol, plus sexism, cluelessness, and our screwed up pop culture. In other words, the usual nose. And now, last night, he performed for the last time as Fantasia, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, and I've decided to shelve that other part of myself. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I didn't know, like how I looked in the pink dress when I watched it on YouTube. Um, and I just feel like that character has run its course. Uh, but I really enjoyed being Fantasia, and thank you, all of you, for your support out there. Uh, joining us today in studio is Rebecca Castellani, a scholar of modern literature, Tanisha Dugan, uh, a producing associate at Theater Works, a Kate Russian, a poet, a writer, and an educator. We have lots of things to talk to you about. Uh, we will talk a little bit about American Idol and kind of segue from there into a very contentious uh, literary conversation between George Packer of The New Yorker and the novelist and critic uh, Rick Moody. We'll go from there to a conversation, kind of as it um, builds on last week's sad Ben Affleck conversation, just about the number of really high-quality actors who are just kind of tied up necessarily by their involvement in long-running sci-fi and comic book franchises. I mean, just, this just didn't used to happen, but basically you have to have that now. And you, well, anyway, we'll talk about that. And then uh, a couple of older writers who got themselves in trouble uh, by not understanding all kinds of things that people need to understand these days, uh, especially in the case of Gay Talese, how the Twitter works, uh, and uh, Calvin Trillin, uh, how his uh, amusing little poem about Chinese restaurants could be misunderstood as cultural tone deafness. So all of that's ahead of us. Uh, I guess we have to sort of begin by digging into American Idol, finishing up its 15-year run last night. 
Um, it's been an interesting run, too. And I, I have this whole social political theory, which I won't bore people with right now, other than to say that it really did come on right after 9-11. And so the initial vibe of American Idol was one of this kind of calculated ruthlessness. You know, we, we have to do certain things, in this case, to preserve the uh, integrity of American popular music as opposed to our freedom. But it was the same attitude. There was a kind of Cheney-Rumsfeld vibe to the, pl- the whole thing. And then they had to get Hopi Changey, and the, the whole show got a lot nicer. Uh, and it ended last night with this kind of enchanting uh, love fest. But there, as, as there always are, there were, Tanisha, all kinds of interesting undercurrents last night, um, ranging from the way people have learned to sing, pretty much the way you heard in the intro, in order to succeed uh, on American Idol. And I don't know, but I'll I'll let you... Well, we were emailing back and forth last night about the so-called black section. It was. Well, you know, I loved your rendition of Fantasia, and I'd have to agree that the uh, outfit was a little unfortunate. Uh, We probably should find a new designer. I'm firing my designer. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But, you know, I hadn't watched Idol in a long time. And again, Idol came out when I was in high school. And uh, it definitely sort of gave melisma its own musical Mm -hmm. genre, as we so heard. Um, But the black section, you know, we know who sings what now because of American Idol. Gospel (laughs) and soul is firmly within the realms of black singers, and country is firmly within the realms of our white singers. Thank goodness for Carrie Underwood. I don't know who would have sang most of those songs last night if she wasn't there. Um, But it's an interesting sort of cultural touch point, American Idol, because it sort of shows us who we are in American music, for better or for worse, uh, even with the William Hungs hopping out and giving us a little chuckle. It's good times. Yeah, actually, we have an actual William Hung fan here in the studio. For people who don't, never followed Idol, so William Hung was this kind of, he was, so one of the things American Idol did was they would have these public auditions and people would show up, both talented and untalented, and some of the untalented people didn't seem to know they were untalented, and some people did, and uh, sometimes it was very difficult to tell, but William Hung was this very, very terrible singer who was kind of just funny in his lack of inhibition and, and, and sang a song called She Bangs. Uh, and it kind of turned into a thing. You were but a child at the time. I was but a small child, but I was touched by William Hung in a way <laughs> that I still quite articulate. Um, I purchased his CD. I went so far as to do that. The CD, I'm unfortunately... I wondering what you did with the CD. You couldn't I, listen to it. Yeah. It was You absolutely was not listening material. But I looked at it a lot and I felt a lot of pride for him. Honestly, I, I was thinking about this. I was like, what was it that drew me to this terrible, terrible singer? And... I think that the the name of American Idol says it all. It's less about a singing competition, I think, than turning people into these idols that we revere for personality. I mean, it wasn't the people. We don't remember many of the top three that were the most vocally gifted, but we do remember William Hung. We remember Sanjaya Gupta, the <laughs> guy with the crazy. I mean, you remember the personalities. And I think that the fact that it was called American Idol versus things like The Voice or The X Factor is really telling as to what sort of cultural touchstone American Idol really was. You know, it's interesting, though, because I think it's a much harder thing to do than they even thought it was or make it sound. I mean, the reality, first of all, American Idol is that, and we'll come back to the race thing because it's really interesting, but the reality of American Idol is that they really haven't launched that many great careers. Carrie Underwood's had a great career. Uh, Clarkson's had a great career. Jennifer Hudson. And Jennifer Hudson, who... Jordan Sparks. Yeah, but Jennifer Hudson, who never came within fogging distance of the the trophy. I mean, Jennifer Hudson was a very early casualty of the third season. Yes, Simon Cowell ripped into her. Right, and she's... uh, 
she's never forgiven him. She either. built her own career through Dreamgirls and other stuff. But in terms of being able to launch somebody into mm-hmm. superstardom, it's harder to do. And some of it, um, Kate, I feel like is – I was watching last night and uh, watching all these people, most of whom I've, I never saw in the first place or have forgotten. <laughs> um, but they were coming back to me. Oh, there's that, you know. Um, uh, there's, there's that guy. Clay Aiken. Yeah, Clay Aiken. Well, I mean oh. he, he just ran for Congress. So that was – I forgot about that. It's easy to remember. But, you know, at a certain point, one of the things that American Idol did was get rid of its original bunch of judges and replace them with much bigger celebrities as judges, people with really active and powerful musical careers of their own. So last night, inevitably, at a certain point in this long tribute to American Idol, uh, J-Lo came out to perform and it just killed it, you know. And the truth about Jennifer Lopez is she's not the world's greatest singer. She's a good singer. She's not the world's greatest dancer. She's a good dancer. What she is is a star. I mean, she for in ways that are very difficult to quantify. You know, she is as what was your? I said with booty for days, which is like the thing (laughs) in American culture right now. I'm just saying, booty is very thank goodness for that. It's trending. Okay, and yes, it helps. Thank goodness for booty. You won't (laughs) you won't get me to contravene you there. But you know, there's something also very unquantifiable about stardom. Yeah, there is uh, – when I, I think about Idol, you know, I think about somebody like Ruben Stoddard mm. who was very good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and won, but somehow where is he now? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it something in his personal life? Was it that he did not have that star quality that you're, you're talking about, Colin? I, mm. I don't know. Uh, so so why, why uh, Jennifer Hudson – Eventually, and not Ruben Stoddard. It's, I, you know, I think when you talk about all of these shows, it is the fact that, like, we're looking specifically at one thing. It is the voice. It is the song. And you can't quantify. You can't vote on what star quality is. It's something that you witness and you're like, yeah, they've got it. Mm-hmm. But most people can't. Like the vast audience can't tell the mm. difference between someone who can sing and someone who's a star. They just they just don't get it. That's why there are people who build careers off of folks who can't sing at all and who are who are brilliant stars. And I think it's interesting too. From my memory, I don't recall Carrie Underwood really having a huge star presence when she was on American Idol. I recall her being kind of awkward and a little soft spoken, and now she's like this powerful icon of country music. So I, I think that it's it's a tricky, as you're saying, it's a tricky thing to predict. And even Idol itself can't predict who from their alumni is going to become successful, Jennifer Hudson being the best example. Yeah, I cultivated. This, I mean, that's what makes yeah. Barry Gordy who he is. He cultivated yeah. those stars. It wasn't something that like, OK, the next day, here you go. Show yeah. up on the Today Show. Go out there, smoky, and start yeah. singing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Speak, Not like that. Speaking of Barry Gordy, Diana Ross and Rhonda Ross were just in town and just talk about mm. star power yeah. and still got it and staying power. Mm. And that was one of the nice things that American Idol would do periodically is have a night that was all about Diana Ross, right? Or have a night that was all about the songwriting team of Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil or something. Okay. And so I think there was a little bit of pop musical education that went on that, that, that was helpful you know, uh, and good. It was one of the things that when, when I found myself liking the show, uh, I, I liked it for that. Well, we do want to just uh, touch upon the uh, incredibly sensitive tripwire of race because uh, it feeds right into this Packer uh, and Moody thing we want to talk about. So th- there was – so Tanisha, you and I were both watching this. <laughs> <We> <laughs> and, were. and so there's this, they did have this kind of black section where, where was, the material was, material was more black and it was more – 
uh, performed by uh, black singers, although not exclusively by black singers. And even that was interesting, right? So... um, our favorite part was, I guess, the Temptations, where uh, we've got. I think it was a total of. Did they equal five? Like yeah. Temptations, they had they had two black guys, three white guys, and they were. Yeah, Colin sort of probably tells the story much better than I do, but they are redoing the song and the and you know I got to give them credit that the vocals across the board were pretty comparable, mm-hmm. but the dancing left some to be desired. So you, know. <laughs> it was like if you were going to do a skit about trying to do a multiracial Temptations <laughs> thing. I mean, there were five people; two of them could do the moves, and the three of them. Could, and, and I think a wise decision would have been okay. Nobody tried to do the moves, or then. you do the Hamilton thing, and you'd go, "This has to be casted by certain." <laughs> kinds of singers and that's okay um and so that gets us into this will get us into packer and moody so because there was a moment okay so i have to sort of declare i have to put my cards on the table i always did have a little crush on latoya london who was the the year that i as fantasia won um she was one of actually three really talented african-american singers uh oh, and the piece starts with the three talented yes. african-american singers singing gospel right we have to get yes. there no well actually they're singing bridge over troubled oh, water that's right? right they're that's harmonizing right. that uh, uh, I was spending most of my time getting used to Jennifer Hudson's purple lipstick, which is like a really bad idea. But, <laughs> um, but so then eventually Latoya London, who kind of was the one who disappeared out of that group of three, came back out to do um, – I knew you were wa- – Hmm? Ain't you proud to, proud to no, no, that was the temptation thing. No, it was I knew you were waiting. Yes. Um, which, to be fair – was a black-white d- duet, right? It was originally Aretha Franklin and George Michael. Mm-hmm. but So she had to do it with Tyler Hicks, who's uh, Taylor Hicks. Yes. So, <laughs> How could I forget? You blocked it out. Yeah. <laughs> the awful depression. And so Taylor Hicks is kind of a guy who actually won American Idol one year, and he's kind of a blue-eyed soul guy, right? Mm-hmm. The whole idea of Taylor Hicks is he's kind of the poor man's Michael McDonald. You know, he kind of... Uh, he can sing in a black idiom, kind of, except that when you put him next to somebody like Latoya London, who I think is really good, this, there's a strain there and it, there's an awkwardness. I mean, would you agree there's sort of an awkwardness at a moment like that? Like Absolutely. One person understands just, the aesthetic and one person doesn't. And I'm starting to realize because that they were sort of the opening act to The Temptations and Taylor Hicks's dancing was so awful <laughs> that perhaps it was the producer's way of like – Opening us into this world of low bar, <laughs> yes, that like this is what you're going to expect in this next segment. Um, he, you know, he is like Michael Bolton. He is Michael McDonald. That is a specific kind of music for a specific kind of person um, who like wants to dip their toe into soul music, but doesn't want to like get all the way in it. Um, and he, you know, he's entertaining because he was funny, mm. funny in his presentation of the song. But I can't say that he carried the story of the song in the way that Latoya was able to do. So as I'm yeah, listening to you, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about is how much African American music and style and dance is at a heart of American popular culture. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's cool and it's hip and it's style. Uh and uh I see in some ways I see idol as some kind of iteration from the Apollo, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was one of these the early and and very influential competitions, singing competitions. There's definitely this outsideriness that became apparent too. You know, when you look at Taylor and you look at the gentlemen uh, from the Temptations, that they're not quite in it. Mm-hmm. They are not of it. Um, they appreciate it, and I, I saw that, but they're not. 
they don't they're missing something that allows them to be fully inside of it. And I wonder, you know, Justin Timberlake would fall into that sort of blue eyed soul category, but he is much more of it. And I don't know if it's because it's a Southern thing. And so we equate some parts of blackness with Southerness. And therefore that piece of him is what allows him to align with that kind of music in a way that seems more authentic. It's a very interesting sort of picture that they were able to paint. Well, I think we can leap from there into this essay that we read this week that kind of deals with this very divide. Uh, that whole question of so who can go where, right? So uh, George Packer is writing essentially a review of a review. He's writing a critique of a re- review written by uh, Mick, uh, Rick Moody, the novelist, who was reviewing novelist James McBride's new book. This does turn into sort of Russian nesting dolls. Uh, James McBride's new book, which is about James Brown. It's called Kill Him and Leave. Um, so um, Packer writes, what thought impelled Moody to snag his reader's attention with the print equivalent of a blindside shove? This. It's an undeniable truth that when African-American writers write about African-American musicians, there are penetrating insights and varieties of context that are otherwise lost to the non-black music aficionados of the world, no matter how broad the appeal of the musician under scrutiny. Uh, That's the quote from Moody. Packer says, by virtue of being black, Moody goes on, Stanley Crouch could plumb the depths of jazz and Nelson George could limb the contours of funk and soul more completely and knowledgeably than the most sensitive, music literate, passionately enthusiastic white critic. Not only is this, quote, undeniable, it's also, as Moody sees it, really a good thing. Quote, this contemporary tendency in which black writers lay claim to the discourse of black music, this increasing tendency is a much needed development for anyone who cares about modern music. Now, then this goes on for about, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 words and brings in absolutely everybody you can think of from uh, Ralph Ellison to James Baldwin to Irving Howe to, I don't know. It's like, I still don't know how they missed Mailer right. in this conversation. How? He's, he's, he's there. The white Negro is there somehow, just walking, so or, there. walking up and down the margins of that piece. I agree with you about that. But so now we've gone to a different place, Kate. Now we've gone from, okay, so we, we know that although occasionally a Justin Timberlake comes along or occasionally, I mean, the song that ends the show on Fridays is by Grayson Hugh, who played in black uh, churches, played organ for the Warburton Community Church as a guy, young guy growing up and really – very doesn't sound at all alien when he attempts these kinds of things. There are people who can do this, but there aren't very many of them. Uh, and and when people do it, try to do it and don't do it well, there's something a little agonizing about it. But that's not what we're talking about anymore. Now we're talking about whether people can even understand things totally. And so I don't know what was your reaction. Well, here's my problem with uh, Rick Moody's statement that by virtue of being black. And my problem with George Packard's response to that, uh, that it was about skin color. What got obscured in, in the, by these two articles is James McBride's credentials mm. and his experiences. He's an Oberlin alum. He's associated with the Oberlin Conservatory and, and the jazz program. He's he's associated with the Oberlin Jazz Program, and he is a jazz musician, and he's been a writer, journalist, for 30 years. That's why he brings new insight 
into James Brown's story. And he may have grown up on James Brown, which is a possibility. It's not his skin color. It's his skills. Although I think what Moody is essentially saying, if you could equalize for all variables, if you could take two guys who had the exact credentials that you just ran through, Kate, and turn them loose on the same subject matter, the black writer would get it and the white writer wouldn't. Uh, I mean, that's the argument he's making, right? Yeah, certainly. That's the argument he's making. Do I agree with that? Uh, Not quite. I think that – so for me, this is less an issue of skin color than it is culture. So your individual culture, which is often informed by your racial identity, is what you bring to anything you read. So I think that is so much – such a larger, vaster issue than just one thing. So I think for him to say – for Moody to say that he says, you know, I I guess – Packer's summary is that race endows writers with an extra dose of perceptual acumen. And I think the perceptual acumen is something that transcends your individual specifics of your culture and your condition. Perceptual acumen is what allows you to move beyond those trappings that define who you are, allegedly. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's – I mean this this is less on point than it would have been, say, before yesterday where he had a, like a really bad day with this. But this is sort of what would have led Toni Morrison to call Bill Clinton the first black president, right? That that he came out of a set of sensibilities that, that you know, even if Bill Clinton and, and – um, Ben Carson got elected president on the same day. Uh, Tony Morrison would have said that Bill Clinton was our first black president. And partly it has to do with class as well yeah. and experiences a growing up working class. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's difficult for me because I hear you, Kate, and I um, under and I and I think that you're right that that missing identifying McBride's credentials made the argument a little less uh, sound. But I do think that there is something about walking around in a particular body that informs how you see something, how you understand something, how the world sees you. And I think, you know, I grew up in a time where Benetton was the way of looking at culture so that it was fine. It was a thing that stood on its own but was also appreciated by everybody as opposed to this idea that, like, we are all one and we are all the same, that differences were um, were recognized and talked about in a way that I could say this is my identity and this is the world in which I come from and now you tell me that piece of your story and where do we collide and where do we uh, depart? Um, that's a, that's the thing that sort of gets to me about these kinds of conversations because we got to a place where we just have to say, well, no, it has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with our perceptions here in America of what that man's experience is. James McBride is closer to James Brown's experience than some of these other writers. It's just, it's just true. And, and part of that also has to do with living in the society as a black male musician exactly. as well. Toni Morrison couldn't write the same thing, you know, in looking at James Brown because the black woman's experience is so different. Because she's going to bring something different to the table. Exactly. Although one of the things that we count on, uh, I'm turning over to the modern literature scholar over here too, is for writers, particularly writers of fiction, to be able to inhabit all kinds of different realities. We want men to be able to write persuasively uh, even in the first person as women and vice versa. Uh, We even want to not get too frothy about that when they do. That's sort of something that we expect the imaginative act to be, to be able to imagine somebody else. What I'm sensing here is that there's a distinction that needs to be made between 
the creative act and the analytical interpretive mm-hmm. act. So I think that obviously James Brown's music is <laughs> completely informed by James Brown's cultural experience as a black man. Like, of course. But I think that Moody's critique is you as a journalist, you're held, I think, to a, a higher standard where it's not higher standard, but a different standard. It's it's not the same as as production. It's analytical. And that's where I think the perceptual acumen requires you to step beyond the you know individual vestiges of what your particular culture has has given you. Hmm. Um, anything else, or should we move on? This is we've decided this is a whole show. We're going to actually take the Packer well, thing and blow it up into a whole show. You know, again, I just I hope that people look into James Brown's uh, James Brown's James McBride's uh, career and mm-hmm. and see how extensive his his his. Uh, experience is as a writer and a journalist with the Globe, People magazine, mm-hmm. Essence, he's won awards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and just not be reduced as I think uh he was by George Packard harping on the color thing. Mm-hmm. Um for people who want to read it, it's up on the New Yorker website uh, right now. Uh I don't think it's as popular as Gay Talisa's Sex Motel piece, <laughs> but uh you could probably find it anyway. Uh we'll be talking about that. Are you, is this it? Are yeah. you push, push? No, yeah. no, I was just getting rid of it. All right. Uh, a, you know, I was forgetting the title. The title is Race, Art and Essentialism by George Packer. It is very thought-provoking, maybe a little bit over policey. I'm not into policing these days. Uh but uh but it it'll get you going. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We have more So um, this week, one of the things uh, that you did, if you were a nerd or anything like a nerd, was get very excited about this. Actually, I, I am a nerd, and I, I finally watched it and thought, wow, this really does look good. It's a trailer for something called Rogue One. Uh, it's a uh, new Star Wars movie. It's kind of a freestanding Star Wars movie away from the other Star Wars movies. Uh, it's about a young rebellious woman uh, or so, and she is played by Felicity Jones. And the trailer makes you really want to see it. It's not coming out until December. Uh, so find other things to do. But um, the, the the thing that sort of struck me and I, the reason that I think we're about to have this conversation and it is a little bit of an extension of a conversation we had last week was, I don't know, I was on the Twitters and uh, people were saying, oh, Felicity Jones, she's going to be in it. She was so great uh, as uh, Stephen Hawking's wife. Uh, you know, I bet, I bet you she'll be great in this too. This is terrific. I'm glad. I'm glad she's going to be in a Star Wars movie now. And I was thinking, well, I guess I am too. And yes, yeah, she was really great as Jane Hawking. But that's. But her career has kind of been that kind of thing, and maybe a Jane Austen adaptation. And uh, and now she's in this thing, and these things tend not to go away. They tend to like do a lot of these things. So unless you get killed in them, you you know. You you stay in there for a long time. And, yeah, we were making a little mental list. Ian McKellen has been in so many X-Men movies and so has Hugh Jackman. And Benedict Cumberbatch is about to be Doctor Strange. But he's also a con in the Star Trek movies. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. And he does some Sherlock Holmes. And so does Benedict Cumberbatch. Halle <laughs> Berry is Storm in the X-Men so movies. Bad. Ben Affleck is, is sad. Ben Affleck is Batman. So but he was Daredevil. Jennifer Lawrence is Mystique in the X-Men movies. And, of course, she's Katniss in The Hunger Games. Felicity. Jones uh, is in Rogue One, but she's also Felicia in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, we could go on and on. So these are like, for the most part, our greatest actors. And the question that I was asking in one email was, like, if Ingrid Bergman were alive today, would she have to be 
like Wasp in the next Ant Man movie or something, yes. or you know, I mean, because that's not really that's what Ingrid Wasp. Bergman was for. Stop she it. she wasn't in Tarzan <laughs> movies and Robin Hood movies. She just wasn't. Ingrid Bergman was for other things. So Tanisha, since you are uh, a student of actors and acting, I mean, is that just the way things are, and nobody should really care about it? I mean, they're going to make a lot of money, and maybe someday they'll. Spend a year playing Beckett stuff. Well, I think that that is at the heart of it, that it is a it's a capitalist move. Um, It is a way to gain exposure in a way that you can't. Um, And, you know, we were talking about this in one of the talkbacks at TheaterWorks about, you know, how does one build a following? How do directors, uh, photographers, sort of those who make decisions determine whether or not an artist is valuable. And the number of followers you have, the number of likes you have is very important in determining that. And doing a blockbuster hit like a Hunger Games or a Rogue One, which is kind of like Hunger Games, it seems, um, is essential to sort of flipping the switch. And when I went to look at Felicity's IMDb, because I was like, I, you're, we're talking about her as like the serious actress, but how do I not know who she is? And I think it's because I haven't seen Theory of Everything. But everything else i saw the sp- the spider-man and i was like well is she really a serious act? like serious in quotation marks like what does that mean um but i think it's it was a business move uh, for her and her and her agents i'm sure she's with a huge agency and you know it's it's an easy way to get her out she'll be at across the world at every major film premiere for the next what year and a half and it'll change her life and I just sort of know that in some room somewhere in in London or or Los Angeles or New York, Rebecca, you know, there are periodic conversations between, say, Daniel Day-Lewis and his managers going, come on, just do one of these. Come on. You could be a villain and you'll die, you know. And Daniel Day-Lewis is going, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but – like I could, it would be easier to make a list of the people who won't do it uh, than the people who will. And, and, and maybe that means people don't become serious actors. Maybe when you're looking for Felicity to be – maybe people don't become serious actors because if they have, they have any success at all, they have to put on costumes right away. Yeah, I was just trying to think of a list of people that haven't sold out to the big franchise, as you say. Um, and it's definitely short. I mean, I think that the, the serious actor, this is now equal to you're a serious actor. And now we're going to bestow you with this multi-million dollar franchise. And this is your, your literal Hollywood star that you get. And you're going to have all this exposure. I, I do think it burns them out, though. I look at someone like Jennifer Lawrence in the first Hunger Games where she really brought this you know, what that quality she had in the Winter's Bone that was so fresh and yes. unlike anything we'd ever seen to the Hunger Games. And by Mockingjay part whatever, I think she was phoning <laughs> it in. Like, she just seemed like she was not connecting like she did. And for, you know, a franchise movie, I thought the first Hunger Games was really a pretty powerful, decent film. And the last one was just awful. It was just a terrible movie. And I think that Jennifer Lawrence is a nice example of kind of what we're talking about, getting kind of burned out by this Hollywood machine. I don't, yeah, what, what were you going to say? Well, that, that yeah, it's the ma- machine burns people out, making it over and over and over again. I don't have a problem with uh, with actors doing a big, a Star Wars or whatever, because these are the narratives of our time that people see, and mm-hmm. that the science fiction movies are so important, and it's important for women to be. Uh, the leaders and heroes in in, in these cartoon uh, films. It's it's important that uh, John Boyega was one of the heroes and one of the leaders because it's a way for us to imagine a future mm-hmm. and imagine our, a future with all these different kinds of people mm-hmm. being heroes and taking leadership. 
And it always reminds us that the terrible trolls are always out there willing to jump on any sort of progress move the film industry makes. I mean, all the trolls on Twitter, they were saying, another female lead for Star Wars? Someone actually tweeted, imagine a universe in which there's a male Star Wars lead. It won't happen. It's like, are you just neglecting the six the other Star Wars right, movies exactly, we have? Like, what? Exactly. <laughs> and and it's an idealist game. You know, you start off in your career and you're like, I remember saying this. My father laughed. He, he died when I was like I'm only doing good work and whatever that means and one of my classmates who's now on an ABC uh, comedy she was like I am not going to just be what I look like I'm going to yeah. and now she's at a, in a show that is centered around her cultural identity you start this game out thinking that you're going to change the world and then you figure out how can you do it within the machine that's been built before you. Right, and and the machine's been around a long time. It just had different forms, right? We know in the old studio systems, I mean, people were forced to make a lot of really bad movies just to keep the cash registers ringing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, People keep telling me that that I was unfair or that I need to see the movie Hail Caesar uh, again so I can not hate it so much. And (laughs) one of the the things that they really do do kind of nicely is there's a guy who's – um, who's been making a lot of cowboy movies and he's really good at these cowboy movies and they're trying to transition him into this kind of drawing room Oscar Wildean kind of I don't know what this thing is the movie is and he just you know and, and you're sort of seeing that old studio system in which people were just flung at projects you know willy nilly so it's not as though uh, the trouble got invented uh, yesterday or even last Friday and speaking of last Friday Last Friday was April 1st, and the joke was on Gay Talese. He went to Boston University, I believe, to give a speech. He was up on stage. Uh, He was asked, uh, as a young man, what his influences were. Who who were the – and then specifically, who were the women writers who influenced him? And, Rebecca, he just kind of bungled the question, right? I mean, he kind of just didn't – really have a satisfactory answer. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, so I I have a really, I had a very specific reaction to this because his response when they clarified, why did you say, he says, uh, my generation, um, none, which is, you know, a problematic thing to say, obviously, for many reasons. And Twitter reacted by naming all the, you know, strong female journalists that he could have named. But he, his response was, uh, you know, he read what he read. The policing of inspiration and influence is really pathological. I believe it should be a feeding frenzy. This was... Um, Katie Royfe, I believe. Katie Royfe, who's yeah. working on a project with yep. him right now and was defending him. So I felt this way frequently in my master's program that if you didn't know something, if you hadn't read something, there was this intense stigma and there was a real pressure to pretend like you you knew what everyone was talking about all the time, even if you didn't. So for him to just say no and then to go on and clarify and say I was inspired by all these female novelists like Carson McCullers, he goes on and on about – I think that he probably gave a pretty honest answer and we're reacting in a way that's very much conditioned by our fear of the white man, especially the older white man, saying, you know, inappropriate things. So I have some sympathy for him. He, uh, one of the people in the audience shouted down to the, from the balcony, kind of, thing, I think, trying to be helpful, Joan Didion. Yeah. And he wrote, well, he said, uh, excuse me, he answered, Joan Didion is good. Yes, of course, I'm glad you reminded me. But she doesn't deal with antisocial people. She's an educated, beautiful writer of fiction as well as nonfiction, as you all know. Um, I think I was more drawn to nonfiction because it indulged my curiosity. And I like to deal with different kinds of people. I mean, one thing I think he was trying to say, Tanisha, is that, I mean, in not saying it necessarily very well, is that his early work involved going out and talking to people who were kind of the dregs of society or were like really dangerous people in the case of people who were, you know, in organized crime and stuff like that. And that, that there was probably an era where women 
journalists didn't do that or didn't and maybe wouldn't have felt particularly safe in that situation, wouldn't even necessarily have felt welcome a bunch of, among a bunch of macho. I mean, he could probably walk into that situation right. in a way that a woman, a journalist couldn't have. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I sort of feel similar to Becca in the sense that I was sympathetic. I have no reference point Amongst you two, I'm woefully out of my depth in terms of of writers. Um, And I don't know. I couldn't answer the question. I guess we assume because he was doing that he could answer the question. But I was of the – I sort of was of the same mindset. Like, okay, in 1950s, how many women were actually writing? How many women were not under the thumb of their husbands? How many women – I mean, I've seen the help. But I don't know how <laughs> true that is in terms of like actually how how it works. And I I actually saw some validity to him saying there aren't too many women who who want to go and like you know talk to pimps or there weren't anyway right there weren't, there weren't yeah. right and and but and I know, think that got convoluted with the idea that they aren't currently yeah um, it was a confusing question I think the moderator really should have asked for clarification mm-hmm. I think that would yeah, have solved a lot have of problems and, but Kate I, I know you probably have something you specifically want to say but maybe you can incorporate this into it too T- going back to your point about James McBride I'm wondering if this is kind of a stupid question in a way in the sense that like you know Gail Collins isn't one of the women writers who's really influenced me. She's one of the writers who've really influenced me. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm just sort of wondering why that question needed to be asked of Gay Talese unless it was to provoke some kind of storm like the one that, that came up on Twitter. Well, hearing it out of context, it, it, it does feel like a bit of a setup to me. Um, and I was actually more taken aback by uh, the reported comments he made to his co-keynote speaker, uh, the writer Nicole Hannah Hannah Jones, who uh, writes for the uh, New York Times Magazine, and she reported him um, saying some things that were very condescending that seemed to to boil down to something like "you you work for New York Times Magazine." And um, and she was taken aback because she reports that he asked her uh, if she and her friend were going to go get their nails done when, as they were trying to figure out the next yeah. conference mm-hmm. uh, uh, event to go to. So I was actually surprised to find that. Yeah, I think that's anecdote. way more offensive personally. Right. Although I lived in New York City, and if you've got a break between a conference, knowing <laughs> where a nail salon is that's <laughs> really good, close to where you are, is not exactly a bad thing. To well, know. I, I got to shake his hand last year at uh, uh, Frank Sinatra at 100, and he had a serious manicure. Yeah. So maybe he was just asking because he was looking to sneak one in himself. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, as somebody tweeted, uh, you know, he's a very gifted writer. He's also an 84-year-old guy from New Jersey. Um, and there, maybe a little bit of that uh, came out. I, I do want to say the one thing that this reminded me of, I mean, uh, was what a bad place Twitter is to work out anything Ugh. complicated. So, I mean, this story, I guess it actually happened on Saturday, but the New York Times story talked about him getting on a train on Friday uh, and then getting off the train, coming back to New York from Boston on Sunday and being told by his wife that, <laughs> that he was famous in a way that he was not aware of, that just he'd been you know, slashed and burned on Twitter. And it really isn't for the kind of conversation, textured conversation we want to have about this. It's sort of not a good place to do that. I mean, you, you, I, I like Twitter. I like to tell jokes on Twitter and I like to 
maybe point out things that we're doing on Twitter, but I wouldn't have a serious con- – anytime I've tried to have a serious conversation with somebody, it's gone in the toilet Im- immediately. Yeah. I, I would like to say one, one last thing about Hannah and the Nicole Hannah Jones mm-hmm. and the situation she was put in as a young journalist. Mm-hmm. Here is you know, a titan of the New Yorker and the new journalism and all of that. And he's asking her these questions that are really putting her in a bad spot because, mm-hmm. as she said, she does, did not want to be disrespectful to him. And she's got her career she's got to manage as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does – you know, I was kind of flip a few minutes ago, but it really does boil down to power, I think. Mm-hmm. It really does boil down to power and who the gatekeepers are and who are not the gatekeepers. And she gets that. I mean, to for all of the education that has to support moving into a role like that, um, there is a, a certain amount of code switching and playing that she's got to that she's had to do and navigate through to be who she is. And I think you and I could both speak to that as we sort of moved into the spaces that we occupy now. That there is a little bit of uh, understanding how to work around and through power. I mean, there's a reason why her response after all of this sort of blew up about her was. And after it all, he's got great style. Look at these shoes. I'll forgive him. Um, because I think she understands what she has to do, what politics she has to play to continue along her path in a meaningful way. I, also, I like the fact – I mean we seem to live in, a, in an era of blowing things out of proportion. Now, I'm not suggesting if in fact it's been correctly reported that what he said to her was in any way defensible or anything other than oafish and uncouth. But it's not – you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis either. And so you could sort of get mad about it uh, and then you do a little funny tweet, well, at least he's got great shoes, and then move on, which is something that we have so much trouble doing (laughs) these days, I think. Mm -hmm. So this gives us just enough time uh, to hear, uh, yeah, we barely have time for this, but uh, so the other person uh, moving into his 80s who maybe had a moment of at least being accused of tone deafness is Calvin Trillin. Calvin Trillin kind of specializes in writing funny poems. He also specializes in writing about food. Let's hear just a tiny bit of him reading this uh, poem about Uh, how concerned he is about how many more provinces there may be in China. Have they run out of provinces yet? If they haven't, we've reason to fret. Long ago, there was just Cantonese. Long ago, we were easy to please. But then food from Sichuan came our way, making Cantonese strictly passe. Sichuanese was the song that we sung, though the mapo could burn through your tongue. Then when Changanese got in the loop, we slurped dumplings whose insides were soup. Then Hunan, the birth province of Mao, came along with its own style of chow. So we thought we were finished, and then a new province arrived, Fukien. Then respect was a fraction of meager for those eaters who had not eaten eager. And then Xi'an from Shanshai gained fame, plus some others too many to name. Now, as each brand new We can province. fade it. We can fade it. We can fade it. So it goes on and on. But um, so uh, similarly uh, in Rebecca, this world that uh, loves to take offense, uh, there were all kinds of suggestions that he was this old man who was in some way suggesting that there's too many Chinese people or that China is too complicated or something like that. Uh, and that once again, 
there was sort of a shame cycle that needed to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just so crazy. I mean, he clearly he said, I mean, because he was obviously called on this. He said his response was simply making fun of food-obsessed bourgeois, which is what I absolutely read from this poem, is he was making fun of like the ever-changing food culture and knowing where your food comes and what the cultural background of your food has become really important. And it was also, I think, celebrating the, you know, Chinese culture in America and how Chinese food was a, a touch, touchstone for a lot of people that had no exposure to Chinese culture to kind of get their feet wet. I mean, I, I, especially in New York, Chinese food has got this whole identity in and of itself. And I think he was that was celebratory in a fun, you know, his style is very much this way. It's Ogden Nash-esque to me. You know, yeah. he was he was it's his style. We're almost out of time here. Anybody else want to chime he in? He loses around? points for his reading because his yeah. reading sort oh, of makes yeah. it less yeah. fun yeah. and frivolous yeah. than I think I its intention is. Right. Yeah. yeah, but I, you know, having spent a lot of my growing up years in New York City, I just saw it as as a New York poem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really? Is there another style of Chinese food? Exactly. All right. Let's go <laughs> eat. Not All right. Offensive. Alice, let's eat. All right. Let's take a break or we'll come back. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Benjamin Esty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Paula Abdul. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, go to our website, wnpr.org. On Monday, show NPR politics superstar Domenico Montanaro. And now, back to Colin. We're also going to have one of the people who will appear on the Connecticut primaries uh, presidential ballot. Maybe I just shouldn't say which one it is, but <laughs> one of the people who will be out. That's what I'll do. I'll do a loss later. Uh, you're, well, never mind. Um, so it's time to do some recommendations. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, what have you got for us? So my first one is less of a recommendation than just an awesome fact. Um, they discovered a new, uh, well, not new, but they found an edition of the first folio. For those who don't know, this is a very, very rare, rare Shakespeare uh, folio um, on the Isle of Butte, which for those, which I would assume is everyone listening, has no idea what that is. This is a very small island off the coast of Scotland where my grandmother happens to live. So this was very exciting as a big English nerd for me. In other English nerdy news, my recommendation for everyone while we're dealing with this tumultuous springtime is a poem by Marianne Moore that I read for the first time this time last year called An Octopus. Um, It's an exploration of Mount Rainier in lyric and it is just absolutely, I think, apropos of kind of our... uh, our strange natural system this year. Marianne Moore, also a big baseball fan. Yes. So it's uh, nice to think about her as the season begins. Uh, Denisha Dugan, what have you got for us? Uh, so after two years of being pregnant, I'm sure feeling pregnant, uh, Heartbeat Ensemble is finally giving birth to the premiere of Gross Domestic Product with an opening night tonight. Uh, and I think they run through this month. I'm terrible. I apologize. But... Call their box office and get tickets. Uh, it's an uh, incredible story about what it means to be a mother in America and the costs of uh, doing that and attempting a career. Uh, and also my new favorite haunt on Asylum, Juiced Up. It's a new juice bar in the Goodwin Hotel building. Great guys, great juices, smoothies. If you're, like, afraid of green <laughs> juices, they've got some stuff for the, the less uh, adventurous. All right. Sounds great. Uh, And what have you got for us, Kate Russian? All right. Well, as you know, April is Poetry Month. So tonight I'm going to the Wadsworth Athenaeum for After Image, Before Words, Art and Poetry in Dialogue. 
and that's going to be presented by uh, Professor uh, St. Joe Professor Dennis Bar- Barone and Jim Finnegan, who runs the Word Forge reading uh, every month. That's going to start with a reception at 5 o'clock with the reading discussion at 6. That's 600 Main Street, and that's at thewadsworth.org. And on Sunday, April 10th, the James Merrill House in Stonington, Connecticut, will present the Spring Fellow, the poet Adam Gianelli. He will be reading from his work at 5 o'clock on Sunday, and that's jamesmerrillhouse.org. And if I can just throw in the big read is happening at the Hartford Public Library, and the book this year is The Grapes of Wrath. The film will be shown on Wednesday, April 13th at 5.30, the great uh, Henry Fonda film. It's wonderful. And you can go to hpl.org. And if I can just throw in a plug for myself, I'm going to be discussing Matilda with Frank Rizzo at the Hartford Public Library main branch, 500 Main Street, on Thursday, April 14th at 6 p.m., in advance of Matilda coming to town, cool. the theater. I played a mean Majo that SUNY purchased. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. All right, uh, I'll do two that are kind of based on our discussion. One of them is uh, after kvetching about uh, costume comic book movies. I am going to, in fact, recommend Ant Man, which I hadn't watched, oh. and it's completely delightful. Is it? Paul Rudd is really funny. Michael Douglas is wonderful. Evangeline Lilly is oh, a, a feast for the eyes, and and uh, and but it's. Very, very funny. It's very creative. It doesn't take itself particularly seriously. Uh, and it's, I didn't never like the comic book growing up, so I didn't think I would like the movie. That's, I shouldn't be thinking in those terms. So, yeah, Ant Man, you can find it on cable. Uh, it's delightful. It's funny. You'll have a really good time. I mean, I, I was just amazed at how much uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, and then, uh, then, apropos of another one of our topics, Calvin Trillin, maybe you didn't like the poem very much, but he's got a very funny piece in, I think, the most recent issue that I have of The New Yorker, anyway. It's about that whole idea of fleeing to Canada because of a megalobin. <laughs> and, and, like, it's, it's very funny. He sort of imagines a conversation that he has uh, with uh, some kind of customs agent who's uh, either not letting him into the country or letting him into the country, and, and it's, uh, it's great. So uh, read Calvin Drillin's very funny Shots and Murmurs piece in The New Yorker, and thanks to Kate and to Tanisha and to Rebecca, and we'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Since American Idol is over and the new Star Wars trailer is out, I can finally audition for The Voice. Hold me closer, tiny death star. I got work to do.